Good morning, Jordan Bud. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing fine, sir. How are you this morning? You know, I asked when you wanted to do this. You gave me a time. <laughs> We're here. But gosh, you're a morning person and I am not. So you've been up for a couple hours doing sit-ups and crunchies and <laughs> side bends and what else? Have you worked out already? No. No, I uh, I have okay. not. I usually do. I try to wake up early and get a workout in early because then it seems like, especially now, the days are so hot. It warms up and then I don't want to do it and then I don't do it and then I get freaking round. So we don't want to want that to happen. So I just get up early and uh, <laughs> but I haven't worked out today yet. So I'll just I'll uh, throw a pack on later and brave the heat. Well, for those who do not know, Jordan Bud is one of my heroes. She lives in Nebraska. She is on the Sig Sauer hunting team and works for Rockslide and has a media business. She's a videographer, knows more about gear than, uh, than I'll ever learn, and is just an all-around badass. So would you tell me a little bit, Jordan, about your your family ranch? You bet. So... We're in northwest Nebraska, a little town called Rushville. There's like, I think the sign, the population sign says 999 people. So not very many. And that's, that's, um, that's given it a lot actually. So, uh, so this is where I grew up and just, we're, uh, we're just a black Angus cow calf operation, just a commercial operation. And, um, my grandpa bought the place in 39, I believe. And so my dad's been here all of his life and I've been here pretty much all my life. Took a, uh, couple years and went to Wyoming to work for a TV show, uh, doing the videography stuff. But I moved back here now and we're doing the, the running water hunting operation that we're, um, we got a couple of neighbors leased and then, um, hunting on our own place. And then I've got the, the media business as well. So keeps me, keeps me busy during the fall, but the, the ranch life is definitely my main, I would say like, that's my all year round deal. You know, the hunting and the media is in the fall and it's all stacked up together, but, um, I'm on the ranch 365 and, uh, I love it. And it's still legit cowboy country over there. And you guys are heading and healing for Brandon's in the spring. Yeah. Your your horseback it, as it's needed. You have some row crops, um, but what what is the terrain like generally? You know, I think a lot of people don't really understand what Nebraska actually is. Yeah, so Nebraska just in general is. I think a lot of people they roll down I eighty. Um, on the interstate and they're just like, uh, it's all flat and corn and a lot of trees. Um, but you get up in our direction, that Northwest corner, we're in the sand hills. So a lot of it's like choppy, but rolling, um, grasslands type thing. So it's, it's super open. I mean, there's like no trees really up in the sand hills. There's little pockets, um, in the bottoms, but, um, for the most part, it's just like really open rolling. We're in a, a unique situation because we're on what they call the Niobrara River. And so when you drop down into the the river, there's like, there's some pine trees. It might get kind of cliffy. And then there's like hardwood river bottoms. Um, so it's like classic whitetail country in the river bottoms. You get up into the broken country with pine trees 
and you run into, you know, that's kind of more mule deer, uh, or mule deer and, and some elk too, like to, to hang out. And then you get out into the sand hills and then also broken up, there's like, there's pivots, like irrigation, you know, pivots, um, of alfalfa or whatever. So it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting, but mostly, you know, people come here and they just think that it's going to be cornfields, but, um, we have all kinds of, you know, we got mule deer, whitetail, antelope, uh, Mary, we're purebred Merriam's turkeys here. And that's just more than most people think that they're going to run into out here. You have the occasional coyote. The occasional one. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> Dude, I haven't been seeing very many of them this year. I don't know what's up with that. Um, well, I mean, I could, I could take a stab at it and, and that maybe it has something to do with, you know, you and Jordan shooting all of them. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that's a possibility. We, we were pretty hard on them this fall, but they needed it. There was a lot of them around. I actually don't know if it's a possibility. Like, I don't know. I can't think of a place where coyotes have actually been shot out of an area. Dude, I don't think so. No. And, um, I, uh, I know a guy that flies for fish and wildlife services and, um, and so they go up and, you know, they take care of coyotes strictly for ranching situations. Like the rancher will be having issues with coyotes. Um, they'll call those guys up and then they'll go over with like, I mean, a super cub basically. And they'll, they'll, uh, help get rid of them. Well, dude, there was one where just around, I think within two square miles of this place where these people were calving, they, there was like one day they shot like 35 coyotes just in that section there, but they always come back. I mean, you shoot those and then a week later there's more coyotes that move in. I think the next week they shot like half that, but good Lord, that's a lot of coyotes in a small area. Yeah. So when you're saying section, are you meaning 640 acres? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I just meant like that. I guess within two square miles of just that area where, where they were shooting those. Yeah. Yeah. But a section is 640 acres. Gotcha. So, um, and, and that is one square mile. So, um, 1280 acres that that that's a super small area to have, you know, 35 plus another, you know, 17 coyotes in it just in a two week time period. It's that's insane. Dude. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean, a lot of that has to do with like where they were, you know what I mean? Like they were in prime where they could. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, I wouldn't say that that's just, obviously that's not average for, um, not spread out over a large area, but yeah, that's, that was, uh, that was a crazy deal. So in a lot of ways you are an, you are an unlikely person to be in the the position and, and profession that you are in. How did that happen? Like what, what is the Jordan bud, um, origin story where, you know, this, this gal from, from Northwestern Nebraska became one of the go-to resources on Western hunting at, at such a young age. Um, actually I was thinking about this the other day and I just really don't know how I just, I was thinking about it the other day and sitting in here and I was going through gear and, and, uh, yeah, I was like, how the hell did I get here? How did this happen? So, um, it basically all started with, I, I wanted to 
film myself. Well, not really myself, but I just wanted to film. I wanted to get into that more. Cameras intrigued me. And I think not really the camera itself intrigued me as just capturing like what I was doing, um, the hunts and, and things like that. So I got a camera. My dad helped me out and bought me a camera. And I just started filming random stuff. And then um, I bumped up to a, a DSLR camera and I got hooked up with a company. I think I just annoyed, uh, quite frankly, I just annoyed the hell out of them until they talked to me. Um, but it was a, a website called selffilm.com. And uh, the guy's name at the time was Forrest Breedlove. And, and he was a professional videographer for the hunts and, and whatnot. So um, got hooked up with them and they had me write some articles. So that started me into the writing portion of it. Um, and then I'd just been always been obsessed with gear kind of, um, and, and being able to, to try stuff out. And I always, and I think I got a lot of this from my dad. He was always a, uh, well, he still is a buy once, cry once type of guy. You know, if you're going to have it, you, you, if it needs to be the best, then you should just save up and you should get the best what you want. So, um, I got, I've got a little bit of my mindsets from him. So anyways, wrote for self film for a while and then rockslide.com had followed me filming and, um, and writing and, and things like that. And a little bit in the meantime, so I was writing for self filmed. I graduated high school, went to college um, I was in college for a year and then I went to Denver to a sports show and I went to this booth and the company's called Best of the West. And I was talking to this guy um, named Joe Cunningham and he was like, hey, um, just BSing with him. We actually had some mutual friends and whatnot. So um, he asked me what I did and I told him that, you know, I'm in college now, but I kind of want to be a videographer and given my YouTube info and whatnot. So he, he had watched one of the videos and he said, if we ever need somebody, we're going to call you. And of course I'm like, yeah, well, I've heard that from a lot of people and you never hear back from them. Well, that was in February and they called me like in August, two weeks before they wanted me to go on the hunt, they called me. And so I'm scrambling to try to get things ready. And I have never, and it was a sheep hunt. Like the first hunt was going to be a sheep hunt. Um, Really? And so there's this kid from Nebraska who's really not done any Western hunting. I'd done a little bit of backpacking because I wanted to get into it, um, but not much. So I I go out on this uh, the sheep hunt and start working for Best of the West, and I'm on a co- contract basis at that time. <clears throat> and so about a year into that, the rockslide.com called me, and Ryan was like, hey, do you want to write some articles for us? We want to... Um, get a little bit more, we need another woman on the team to write about things, you know, give a woman's perspective. So, um, so I hopped on and, and started doing that. And rockslide.com is purely, for the most part, pretty much gear oriented. They don't really do like hunting stories and things like that. It's all gear reviews or how to's. Um, so I got hooked up with them and then uh, started writing for them. And, and then I got on full-time with Best of West. I did that for two years. And then in 2018, um, I ended up moving back here to Nebraska, um, ramping up my own media business just for freelancing. 
And then um, actually, la- I think it was last year, started the Rockcast podcast with Rockslide, um, where we pretty much cover all the gear stuff. So, I mean, my I kind of have my fingers in a little bit of in a lot of things. There's a lot of irons in the fire. And I think that that is one thing that helped me get to where I'm at now is because I just did a lot of different things and I never really told people no, you know what I mean? If there was an opportunity, I took it. And, um, I think that's, that's paid off, but short answer, I have no idea how I got here, James. Well, you, I mean, you said it, you got there by seeking out opportunities and not saying no to them when they happened. A lot of people, I mean, if somebody called me right now and said, Hey, can you, you know, go fill, fill any type of support role on a sheep hunt two weeks from now, um, all the blood would drain from my face and my hands would start shaking. And I'd say yes, but I would be really, really nervous about it. But I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. And I think that that comes from our ranching background is that the, the model for business is that when you have an opportunity to do something, you do it. And if there's not an opportunity, then you create one. And, you know, that's just what you have to do to be able to, to make it work. And I think what you just said there was key. If you don't have an opportunity, you make one. Um, my dad told me once, he's like, it's kind of crazy. If things aren't working out, you just kind of, you make them work out. You just adjust things to where it's going to work out for you or whatever you want to do. So, um, I think that is, that is key. And I've, I've talked to, there's a few guys, um, you know, people reach out to me and they want to be a videographer. They want to be in the industry and whatnot. And there's, there's a couple of guys that they have, I think they, they have the talent for what it would take to get there. Um, and they've actually had the opportunity. There's this one kid that's from like, I don't even know where he's from up North somewhere. And he was gonna, there was a, a, well-known TV show that asked him to go down and and film and he's like well I can't go because I have college well dude I had college too and I just like quit maybe I shouldn't tell everybody to just quit but I took the fall off and and I went and filmed and made a little bit of cash got some experience under my belt and then I went back to school in the spring so um it just you got to seize those opportunities because the one thing too is you know, if I would have said no to best of the West, they wouldn't have asked me ever again. You know, they're just like, all right, well, she's out. So we're going to go on to the next person. Like you can't do that, you know? And this is a small community. Um, hunting is, is not that small of a community. It's about 1% of the population in the U S maybe a little bit more than that, but the hunting industry is small. So everybody basically knows everybody else or, or at least talks to somebody who knows somebody. And, you know, if, if I talk to somebody and say, Hey, you know, you know, anything about Jordan, Bud? I was thinking about hiring her to film something. They say, yeah, I called her one time, but she was jammed up with school and said, no, like, Oh, Roger that this is a person who, you know, says, no, I, I need the other kind of person. And then I don't call you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then like, there's been some times where I have been, you know, really busy with other things and I've said no to 
filming opportunities and not so much like the on the hunting side but on you know other sides where it's just it was I was busy and I couldn't do it like I had other obligations and I, I couldn't do it for that week and yeah I mean I I totally see you know I'm not the first person that that guy would call anymore you know I'm like on down the list if the rest of the people can't do it you know and so um I don't know it I think it gets to the point where you get so busy that you have to, you will start saying no to things. And I'm almost getting to that point and it really sucks. Cause I, um, you gotta, you know, pick, I guess, pick your battles in a way. Um, but when you're just starting out, you have to take opportunities. Like if there's a company that asks you, Hey, will you write us an article for this? And you ask them, well, you know what, what am I going to get out of it? And they're like, well, just the experience. Like if you're just starting out, you have to do those things. Like you don't, you'd have to, it's baby steps, right? It's not like I just woke up one day and was like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And then like, now I'm here. Um, there's a lot behind the scenes. I mean, this started in 2011. I mean, and it's 2020 right now. And I feel like I'm just getting to where I'm scratching the surface into the industry. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. You know, I'm, I'm in much the same boat and it feels really good to sort of, you know, see the trees moving past you and realize that you, you have a little bit of momentum. But for me, that, that doesn't mean rest. That means throttle, like give it everything I've got and, and see, see what I can gain from it now. Because when I look back at everything that it took to get to where I am right now, it is, basically an, an unfathomable amount of work and, and, and time and failure and everything else. Things that if, if I had to look back and say, okay, now I have to do all that again to get back to where I am now, it, it would be overwhelming. But one of the things that, uh, that I like to do is if I feel like I'm not getting far enough or fast enough or, or achieving what I want to achieve, I just zoom out and look at where I was a year ago and two years ago. It's like, okay, I've, I'm gaining ground. I'm doing it, but I'm doing it by absolutely working my tail off. I think I have five jobs right now and I'm down one of them because I still can't guide fishing in Oregon. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's crazy times for everybody, but you, you just have to work and, and do everything you possibly can until you hit that red line where you're like, okay, now is the point. I've reached my bandwidth. I I I can't do I can't do more than what I'm doing now. And uh, then you can start prioritizing and, and doing more of what you want to do. And I think that that's kind of where you and I are are both at to to a degree. And and it's interesting that we're starting to get to work together on stuff. And that's super cool for me because I admire you so much as a human, I mean, it's cool that, that rock slide wanted to get a woman's perspective, but I could care less. Like yeah. you're just a go-to resource. Dude, I, I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And, uh, I think it's important. And I mean, you're doing it too, like staying true. Not that, well, there's people that aren't in it for the right reasons. And I know that's kind of blanketed and maybe that's, I guess shallow of me to say, but I mean, it's true. Like there's, you know, there's people that are getting into this that, um, if social media didn't exist, they wouldn't be doing it. Well, dude, 
if social media didn't exist, like if we didn't have podcasts, we didn't have all this, I can't think of a single thing that I would be doing different right now. Literally, I don't. And I think that you're the same way. Well, and I want people to realize something for, for the folks that are tuning into this and, and thinking that, you know, this is the direction that they want to go as well. There's a major pitfall out there right now. And um, that is that a lot of people are just trying to get to a point where they can get stuff for free. But this is what I want you to realize. If you're getting something for free, anything, I don't care if that is a a hat or a t-shirt or being able to use um, a social media platform like Instagram or Facebook, which are free. If you're getting something for free, you are the product. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense for you to get that item. So think about that and then think about your own value. And if you, if you have, if you've estimated that your value is the same as a baseball cap, then that's fine for you to get a free baseball cap. But that's basically how somebody else is, is estimating your worth. If that's what they give you. Yeah, dude, for sure. Like, um, somebody gets paid. I think Snyder says that all the time, but somebody has got to get paid in it. You know what I mean? Like if they're, if they're giving you a product or, I mean, if they're even giving you a discount on the product, I mean, they're giving that to you because they see that you're somebody that, you know, people are going to look at and they want you to be using their product. But I think also using that product for the right reasons, like because you like it too, you know, just from a, from a straight up product standpoint. Um, And I think, uh, you know, just because something, somebody gives you something, it doesn't mean you have to jam it down people's throats. I mean, if you use it in a genuine way and you put content across organically of just you using it, um, then I think that's going to be a, that's going to be a plus. And that'll separate you from, from other people too, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's the rarest individual who gets to experience the full spectrum of, any type of gear item. So if I'm, if I'm saying that, you know, this arrow knock is the best knock out there and that's the one that I'm using. And it's also a company that I'm working with. I better have shot every single arrow knock available. I have to have shot them all and compared them and, you know, analyze them from a scientific standpoint to know that in this situation, this is the best possible one out there. If you just say it's the best gear out there and you haven't used everything else and it's a company that you're working with, then you've just sold your credibility and you can never get it back. I, I tell people that their credibility is the most valuable thing that they have and they only get to sell it once. So if you sell it, get a good price for it. But my goodness, just hold on, hold on to your credibility if nothing else. Dude, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I mean, how are the goats doing? We got to talk about the goats. You knew I was going to ask about the goats. (laughs) Oh, the goats, dude. Every time I do a questionnaire on Instagram, uh, James is always like, hey, when are you going to start their own Instagram page? I'm like, never. The goats are never <laughs> You don't even get- respond to it. <laughs> I know. I need to. Um, is, this a, uh, is this a PG-13 podcast where we can say what you want 
the page to be named? Um, <laughs> no, oh. no, it's <Okay>. not. <laughs> it is great, though. It is great. Um, <laughs> oh, man, it is good. But uh, anyways, no, the goats, um, they're still alive. I guess. And that's, that's an accomplishment. That's a lot. You know, it's an accomplishment. And um, we're getting to the point they they need banded. Apparently with goats, you're supposed to wait like four months before you castrate them. Um, we're going to band them to do that job. And so that worries me a little bit on that stress. But I haven't been around banding that much. But it seems like it would be less stressful than just cutting like we usually do calves. Yeah, I don't know the first thing about castrating goats. Neither do I. But I know uh, my dad's like, hey, you, maybe you should just cut them just like a regular calf. Just cut them because the banding is kind of, you know, it's like a tourniquet basically. It, you know, cuts blood flow off and then their sack just eventually falls off. And he's like, eh, that's kind of, eh, I don't know. And um, but those little things, dude, if they get their head stuck in the fence and you go to get them out, they start like crying and bawling. And I'm like, I'm not cutting that thing yeah well there's probably going to be a little bit of crying when you apply a a tight rubber band to everything that those little goats futures depend on (laughs) but we used to band um, our steers when they were you know a year old or close to it with this great big bull bander and it was it was one of the um, scarier things that ever happened on the ranch (laughs) because you know, a, a horned, you know, six or 800 pound, um, Corianni bull, you know, he, he wants to hashtag resist having a big tight piece of rubber wrapped around his nuts. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of, a lot of kicking that went on and a lot of those kicks ended up landing on me for some reason. So hopefully, uh, you don't get hoofed in the face by a goat while you're trying to, trying to ban the poor little guys. <laughs> who've kicked yeah not good um we'll see we'll see how it turns out we might have to have a uh, a group of people to help us but we'll we'll get it done how many goats are we dealing with these days uh six dude we've got six we took five on the uh the latest old backpacking trip and then we got back and we have like a local um website you get on like a swap shop so i was looking at that and that's never a good idea because i always end up with something and there was some lady that was selling like an Oberhassi goat and all of ours are Alpines or the other five anyways are Alpines. Um, but those are kind of the two that people seem to use for pack goats is Alpines and Oberhassies. And they're actually starting to cross breed them. And they say that that's a, a pretty good, um, pretty good mix right there. But anyway, so I saw she had this goat for sale and I'm like, God dang it. Um, we don't need one, but it's close. So yeah went and picked it up and and now we have six are they all billies yeah yep yep they are and they've all still got their their horns i guess their horns aid in um keeping them cool i guess um that's just a thing i heard once and then i've i also heard that keeping them all billies was a good way to go um or bucks or whatever they are um that was a good way to go because if you start mixing them with females, it's not the greatest, I guess. I, dude, I really, I don't know the first thing about goats. You know more about it than I do. 
So the <laughs> the concept um, that w- that we're working on here is that these are pack animals, so they'll eventually be able to carry around forty pounds. Yeah, I mean, so a goat can carry like four, I think it's forty percent of their body weight. Um, dang, it's been a while since I looked at this, but hopefully they're going to get to 200 pounds. That's the goal. That's kind of the minimum goal is 200. You want them like 200 to 220, 225. Um, there are bigger ones out there, but that's going to be our goal. Um, so, I mean, there's some big goats, bigger goats that you can pack, I mean, 60, 70 pounds. Um, not for like a long distance, but I mean, you could do it. Yeah. So, you know, if you've got half a dozen goats carrying 60 pounds, you can have a pretty nice camp. Yeah, yeah, you can. One thing, so I hunted with uh, Ryan Avery's goats last year, and uh, we were on an elk hunt, and we were packing stuff up, and I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to bring extra batteries. I'm going to bring, like, a little bit of extra comfort. And as I was putting everything on the goats, Ryan was just like, you know, if we shoot a bull, though, you got to carry all that stuff back out. And I'm like... Oh yeah. Yeah, you do. That's true. So, uh, my pack was a little heavy coming out, but that's all right. It, it was really nice being able for them to pack it out, get all out in one trip and not have to go back up. People, uh, glorify pack outs so much and it's, it's fascinating to me and, and I get it, right? Like that means that you punched a tag, you're successful on a hunt, but I've done so many hard pack outs that that is just not a part of the hunt that I'm like, woohoo, I'm packing, you know, 80 pounds four times or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, if you can, if you can put some of that weight on these, these little critters that can eat basically anything and don't even need as much water as you do, like, that's great. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Save on the knees a little bit. And it is Dude, it is fun. Like having them things around, they're just another source of entertainment. Um, you have to think about some extra things just as you do with any kind of a stock animal, you know. Um, you got to make sure that in goats, this is going to get, this is where it's going to get a little bit goofy is goats need to go with you. Like they are, you know, mountain lion snacks. And, um, just the predation, uh, predation on, on them is crazy. So, um, we have like a high line that will string up at camp, but you can't really leave them. So they've got to go with you. Well, when we went on this last backpacking trip, they just follow you around. And then when you stop to glass, they might kind of be annoying, um, at first, but then they just go lay down. And I guess if you take a squirt bottle, uh, you can like squirt them in the face and it'll, they don't like water. So, well, for the most part, they don't like water. So they'll go and, they'll kind of, they're really quick learners, I think. Um, and they'll learn, you know, their boundaries of where they can be and where they, they can't be. But, um, we tried the squirt bottle thing on these little babies and, um, good Lord, they, uh, one of them, I squirted him in the face and he just walked up to it and put his mouth around the thing. Cause he wanted some water. So I was squirting water in his <laughs> mouth. <laughs> and of course you're like okay have a drink yeah exactly i'm like yeah this uh this squirt bottle stuff doesn't work when they're when they're babies and i've heard that from a few other people too they're like hey do uh do your goats like the squirt bottles because they don't literally do anything with mine i just squirt them and they look at me and they keep doing whatever it is that they're doing and i'm like yeah it's <laughs> thus far it has not worked for us but i guess when they get older they uh they respond to it pretty pretty good 
yeah, you might have to up your game to some kind of a super soaker. Yeah, something like something like that. The problem is you got to carry that stuff. You got to carry it back with you. Well, the goats do now, I guess. But dude, that's another thing with goats is they can't really pack their, I mean, much of really anything until they're like three, four years old. Um, yeah. So it's it's a uh, it's a commitment. When they're a year old, you can pack some like bulky stuff on them. So that's where we can throw. Like we could even throw our sleeping bags on them, you know, maybe get rid of a little bulk from our packs, but I don't know. They're, um, it's going to be interesting seeing how this goes. Yeah. Well, I look forward to, you know, following the progression of your goats on their very own Instagram page, uh, which I look forward to you starting (laughs) as I've mentioned about 17 times previously. (laughs) Okay. One of the things that I really wanted to talk about with you because you do have such uh, such a breadth of experience with gear and with backcountry hunting and filming. Guys, when, when these folks are filming hunts, they're carrying a lot of extra weight. So those batteries, those cameras, those lenses, those take up a lot of space and weight. And realistically, it, I would compare it to like bringing an extra two or three guns with you on a hunt. Like that would be an insane thing to have all strapped to your pack or inside your pack. But that's what these videographers are going through to be able to film these hunts. And if it's a sure enough backcountry hunt, those, those pounds come at a premium. So being judicious about what you actually carry is, is a big part of the game. But you have to have the right stuff to keep you in the game for whatever period of time is required of you. So what I wanted to talk about is the things, Jordan, that you and I have have carried in our packs, you know, over the the course of our hunting history that we no longer carry. We spend a lot of time talking about the gear that we need, but we don't probably spend enough time talking about the gear that we don't need at all. Dude, yeah. I think that uh, when people are first starting out, I think they bring too much clothing. I think they bring too much food. And I think even like on the, um, on the first aid side of things, and this can be a little bit goofy, but just bring in too much stuff. Like you probably don't need an entire roll of, uh, athletic tape. You know, you could shave that down a little bit. Um, I'm trying to think of some like big things I've taken out of my pack food wise, dude, I used to, (laughs) I used to take MREs like, like the full ones, you know, like not open the package and get out what you want. Like I used to take whole ones. So I would have that. And then mountain house. Well, good Lord. I mean, I just didn't know anything when I was doing, I just threw a bunch of stuff in. Um, so I had that. And then the clothing thing, I've always been pretty good with clothing. Um, I haven't brought a whole bunch of stuff, but I've been on hunts where, um, you know, back high country hunts where we're backpacking in that guys have like busted out like a tree stand jacket, like an all in one tree stand jacket instead of, you know, packing in like a layering system. Um, so dang, maybe you, maybe you should go first and then I'll, uh, I'll be able to think about more stuff. For, for me, it's mostly the stuff that I brought extras of that that I no longer do. And I find that in all kinds of packing. 
like where where I used to have to bring you know a a duffel bag that I could you know fit like a full set of hockey gear and and three dead bodies in now I'm like no it's like a backpack but I just don't bring I don't bring extras of very many things I bring an extra set of batteries for a headlamp and I've two I have two sources of light um I have two knives um but as far as stuff that I have redundancies of it's like I've got two pairs of socks I guess but I don't bring extra pants anymore I I don't bring an extra shirt I I bring one shirt that I'm wearing and then the additional layers that I think that I may need given the weather situations that I've predicted that I'm going to encounter. I see people do a lot of crazy stuff to cut weight out of their packs. I've seen people punch holes in their straps and, you know, cut their, their toothbrush handles off and, and do lots of stuff to, to shave fractions of ounces. And then, you know, they bring an extra tarp or they bring a, a tent that has its own poles, you know, like a, like a, a, pup tent thing that you know has yeah. extra poundage just built into the thing it's like that's that's a place to save space oh yeah dude so um i would definitely say like a headlamp i used to carry two headlamps like two big headlamps um now i, I have something they call a petzl e-light and it's just a it's a tiny little thing and you wouldn't want to rely on that thing for backcountry hunt but if you if your other headlamp went down I mean, it would work. And then it's good for just little camp stuff too. I keep it in my bino harness, so it's always with me. Um, so I'll do that. And then like a regular headlamp and an extra set of batteries. And sometimes if it's even like a three or a, you know, like a shorter trip, I won't take an extra set of batteries. But if it's like a, if it's a really serious hunt and then it's more than five days, I'll take an extra set of batteries. These, um, I like these black diamond headlamps. I think a bunch of them do it now, but the ones that I use, they lock. So I just make sure that it's locked all the time. And then that's helped them a ton from turning on. Um, but yeah, I think clothing and the the extra set of pants and, and stuff. Yeah. That just, yeah, you're just going to be uh, grimy and probably a little smelly by the time you get out of there. I need to l- look into that locking feature because the the reason that I'm packing extra batteries is so many times I've gotten into the top pouch of my pack to pull my headlamp out and I'm like, uh-oh, it's on barely because it's been on for the last you know 27 hours. And it's like, oh, what have I done? You know, it's just barely glowing. It's like, yeah, if I don't have new batteries, then I'm working in the dark. So I like to carry an extra headlamp um, inside of a bag that has my game bags, my my extra knife, a little bit of flagging, um, a couple of those reflective tacks so that I can come back and, and find find my way into where the game bags are on that second trip in. Thing, things like that. So just kind of keep keep my my extra stuff in a little little kill kit, if you will. Oh yeah, dude. I like separating all my stuff out into little kits. Cause then, um, you know, I think we're in a unique situation where we do a lot of these back to back hunts. So there's times where I'll be home for, I mean, two days and I'm rolling again. So keeping everything in the little kit, it's easy 
So you can take that kit out and you could be like, okay, what's missing from it? Or what do I need to add to it or take away from it? Um, and then you can just throw it in your pack or throw it in yeah, your bag or whatever. You can just throw it in and then take off. And you know, one other thing I was thinking about was I used to carry like a big fixed blade knife and now I've gotten away from that. Um, what are you using for, for knives now? I'm, I'm honestly all over the place on knives. So I'm generally opposed to throwaway blade knives, but when I'm skinning coyotes and, and skinning the things that I'm trapping in the wintertime, I do use a Havlon knife for that. I'm, I really like it. Typically my hands are cold. I'm working outside. I'm, I'm using, you know, a, a set of trapping gloves that are like have rubberized palms and, and stuff like that. Cause a lot of these animals are kind of, kind of greasy on the fat once you get them start getting turned inside out. Um, so having a, a really, 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 really sharp knife every time and a consistently sharp knife, like the same sharpness helps me be a little bit safer with it. I do like uh, a full handled knife when I'm, when I'm hunting, especially if there's a possibility that I'm going to be breaking an animal down. And a lot of times I will actually carry like a sure enough boning knife, you know, with a, I like a, a six inch flex boning knife with a plastic handle. So you can get, get them from, uh, Forstner or Victor Knox or, um, oh gosh, what's the fishing company one, um, that makes a lot of fillet knives. Not sure on that. I'm trying one. to remember, but, uh, anyways, they're, they're fairly inexpensive knives and they're what you're going to see in, in butcher shops for the most part. And you can get them typically for around $20 and they don't actually weigh that much more than anything else. Um, and if you do have to break an animal down because I've done so much butchering in my life, you know, that's just what I'm used to. So using a, a little knife to actually butcher when I'm used to going fast and hard at it and, you know, just trying to cut as much meat as possible as quickly and cleanly as possible. Uh, you know, I like to have that knife, but if, uh, if it's just a backcountry hunt and I'm, I'm going to carry two knives, then one of them is going to be something like, like the, uh, like the Argali carbon knife. That's one I've been using the most of lately. Uh, I used the Benchmade altitude knife quite a bit last year and that worked fine too. But I like something like that, you know, something that's got a three or four inch blade, um, a handle that's going to go across all four fingers and something that I can actually put some pressure on and be able to resharpen while I'm in the field. So I'll bring a little uh, ceramic rod or like the, the little work sharp um, sharpeners that have like three sides, you know, they'll have like a, a leather stropping side and a diamond side and, and a ceramic side. I'll just pop the diamond plate off um, and then throw that in my pack and I can sharpen anything with that, whether it's a, a hatchet or, or a knife. I actually used to use um, just a hatchet and I would, I would gut skin a quarter with a hatchet and it, it was extremely sharp and I, I can go through an animal really, really quickly with a good hatchet. Dude. Interesting. Um, I'm pretty close to the same way on the knife. I use that Argali carbon also. There's just so many companies that are starting to make a little fixed blade knife like that. That's super light and, and just easy to throw in any pocket that it's like, 
it's uh it's really nice to be able to go to that and i still carry like the um the taito or like the havalon type knives with the replaceable blades um i like those ones but those two i carry with me all the time and i used to carry this was back in the old early days of not knowing much i used to carry a uh, like a little foldable saw and i've ditched that thing since and it just um I know people like to bring that because especially if you're used to doing whitetail stuff all the time, you know, you take a saw because you're gutting things all the time so you can cut the sternum open and and like the pelvis and whatnot. But back there, we're doing pretty much all gutless. So you just, you can just, you just debone and you just do the gutless method on everything so you don't really need to cut through any bone. You just, you know where the joints are and and you know how to how to work those so you don't have to like pry on them too much and just seems like it uh, works better. Yeah, for sure. And if you do a little bit of research and a little bit of practice, you can, you can totally split a pelvis or a sternum with a knife without damaging your knife. It, there's a sweet spot and you've got to, you've got to learn it. And if you like swing into a butcher shop or something like that, they may be able to show you if they've got a carcass back there. And every butcher that I know, you know, they would be stoked to take you to the back room and and show you some tricks of their trade. And that can save you a lot of time. But yeah, my granddad could pop um, an elk pelvis with a butter knife. There's there's just a spot where you can do it. And then you give it a a little shove on each side and, and she pops right in half. Oh, nice, dude. Nice. We've just always taken the easy way. <laughs> yeah. A, a saw is not, is not necessary. If I'm going to carry a saw, um, I carry a folding silky saw and it's called like the, the, the big boy XL or something like that. And I think it's folded. It's like 18 inches long. Um, so that's about the length of the blade as well. And with an 18 inch blade, you can cut a tree that is twice that diameter. It's not going to be any fun if you have to cut, you know, a 30 inch tree, but you can absolutely do it with that saw. And, you know, we have a lot of wilderness areas and and you can't, can't carry a chainsaw and where we used to carry a crosscut saw, which, you know, is uh, nicknamed the misery whip and aptly named it that I even had to fight fire with that stupid thing a few times back in the day when firefighting was my job. But, uh, man, I, with these folding silky saws, I can cut through wood way faster than I ever could with, uh, with a misery whip. So if you're trying to get out of somewhere and, and you get a tree down across the trail, you can definitely get it done, done with that saw, but that's more of a, of a livestock thing anyways. So Gotcha. You know, the, the saw that I carry around in a side-by-side or or whatever is going to be that, that silky saw. And then if I'm going to be on a cold weather hunt where firewood is a big part of the equation and I've got extra weight just in survival and, um, you know, carrying all the layers that are needed for a cold, cold weather backcountry hunt, then that folding saw is going to be part of the game just so that you can get big pieces of firewood that that are actually going to keep you warm all night. Yeah. Have you been around those Wyoming saws? I've got a couple of those that pack up pretty nice. Yeah, I have. Um, and I, I definitely had one of those as a kid and, you know, for the folks that don't know, they break down into, um, four pieces, four or five pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's just like a, a little, 
bow saw and they typically come with a blade for bone and a blade for wood and they'll roll up nice and small. That's definitely a good tool for people that are into that. Dude, for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else I brought with me. Um, maybe maybe too much fuel too. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I understand that fear of wanting to bring, you know, even for a five-day hunt, bringing like like three cans of, of fuel for your stove. But um, I think, you know, four days you can get by with one. So just bring a, I usually bring a couple for a five-day hunt and I have yet to run out on a hunt, but I've been, I've been close. One thing you can do is bring a, uh, bring a Sharpie with you. And every time you use that, that fuel bottle, which typically you're using to heat a quantity of water that, that is consistent, right? And whether you're making a cup of coffee or, or cooking water to reconstitute some, some freeze dried food, it's about the same thing. Um, as far as the amount of water that you're using. So just take your Sharpie and make a little mark on the bottom of your fuel can. And then when it completely runs out, you'll know how many burns you can actually get out of a can, you know, at that altitude. And then you've got a baseline to operate off of in the future. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. Nice. There's some of those, like the, uh, the MSR ones, they, um, they have a deal where you like, if you can put it in water or stream or something, it float, it'll float up and where it, wherever, uh, they have like lines on the side and then wherever, whatever line you're on that it's like, is touching the top of the water. It'll, it's like a, it's a gauge. And then they give you, if it's half full, you can get like, I don't know, eight more boils out of it or whatever. You should not quote me on that. Cause I'm not sure I'm just making stuff up, but they do have like a little gauge on the side that, that you can use. It's kind of nice. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. It makes sense, of course. Yeah. Smart, smart idea for MSR or whoever did that. Um, the other thing to keep in mind about backcountry cooking is if you have a little, you know, titanium coffee cup or a little titanium pot, you can, you can totally throw that um, on top of a fire and cook with it. Uh, now it's, I, I really recommend that people are just boiling water in that case and that they're not using direct flame because uh, titanium will warp and you know, your, your expensive lightweight pot will never be the same again, but running out of fuel is not the end of the world. Like you can still cook without fuel because you can burn firewood. Yeah. But if yeah. you have like a, a jet boil, that's that option's not really available to you. No, I'm, I melted a whole bunch of snow in that MSR reactor and that thing did really well last year. Nice. What is the reactor? I don't know about that one. Um, I don't even really know how to explain it. It's just a, um, it's it just, uh, dang it. What is it? A canister stove. It's just a canister stove. You screw it onto the little canister and then it, um, it has like a, you can get different size pots for it, but the one I have is just a one liter. And the way that the pot fits to the burner is it does so well in wind. Um, it does super, super well in wind. And it just seems to be like a bomb proof little thing. I've only had mine a year. Um, but other dudes that I've talked to that have run it for a long time, they're like, that's a, I mean, that's a, like a doomsday one. Like if you're going to 
if you if you can only have one, that might be the the one to take. And it's the same weight as a like a jet boil flash. A lot of the through hikers are are using just alcohol stoves and making their own little stoves out of you know pop cans and stuff like that. And that if you're really interested in in saving weight, then learn how to do that. And typically they'll use um, heat like the the fuel treatment H E E T, and I think it's the the yellow bottle. You can get them for like a dollar twenty nine at, at your gas station. And basically they'll pour in a tablespoon of fuel or, you know, whichever small amount of fuel they need. And then they hold a lighter up to the bottom of it to get it hot. And then fumes start coming out through the little jet holes in the top that they've created. You light those jet holes and that will, that will boil as fast as anything. And you're only ever using the amount of fuel that you need. Um, So people that are really weight obsessed, I see going to something like that more often than not. Yeah, I don't think that life is for me, man. It's not for me. No. But I'm I'm a I'm the type of physique that uh that carries weight. Um <laughs> so, yeah, I I can be afforded some luxuries just because, you know, I'm I'm a big guy. I'm not um mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the first one to the top of the mountain by any means, but I if you you know, need, need me to carry 180 pounds. Like I'm, I'm the guy for that. So I I can carry a a big jet boil and a couple extra cans and, and be okay with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Are there any optics that, um, that you don't carry anymore? Hmm. Dude, this one's ever evolving, I guess. Um, you know, I was a a tens and a 15, 15s person for a long time still am um but i've started to go more towards the route of like 12s i got those 12s um from sig they're the zulu 7 12 powers um for 12s they're they're light and they're small and and they're nice but uh i wanted to to go up in glass a little bit so i went to the zulu 9s and those are the 11s and i just got them like a week ago so i haven't had them very long but i've thrown them on a tripod and, and glassed around a bit um i would say maybe that's even one thing i've changed is making sure that i always have my binoculars on a tr- on a tripod at least most of the time you know there's always times you sit down and then you do a quick scan and then go to a spotting scope or something like that but being able to steady binoculars up even eight powers on a tripod's a uh, a pretty pretty big deal but um i think this year i'm going to use a sig uh the zulu 9 11 powers and then i'll take a spotting scope with me i don't think i could ever leave a spotting scope home unless i was going to be like just archery elk hunting in a timbered area yeah a spotting scope is increasingly something that i'm not taking with me Ooh. and that's that's an evolution for for me to an extent because um I'm not as score obsessed as I used to be. So I can determine, you know, roughly what an animal is with binoculars pretty well, you know, well enough to make me happy. So the times that I'm actually carrying a spotting scope really are when I'm, you know, working, working for a client who is really interested in a score and I need to know exactly, you know, what that bull is before we move in on him. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. I am, I'm kind of the same way. And you can just, you can pick stuff, but a lot of the stuff I'm doing too is mule deer for my personal self. So you can, um, 
you can pick deer out laying down, you know, by their ear flicker or uh, whatnot. I've caught their, their, uh, like the outline of their frame just in the shade. Um, back in the trees, just been able to pick that out with a spotter. So I don't know. I, um, I haven't left at home yet. I don't know if I can. Yeah. No, there's, there's a very real application for it. The optic I'm the most excited about right now is the Zulu six stabilized binocular. And I don't think you've got to see those yet, but you will, when we go, um, goat hunting together here in uh, a month and a half or so, but they, they're honestly steadier than a tripod and people have a hard time when I say that, but with a tripod, you get a lot of vibration. You know, when you, when you shift the optic or if there's wind or something like that, there is some vibration. And with these stabilized binoculars, it never vibrates. So you always have a still image and you Dude, can really yeah, pick out oh, go ahead. Those, those little nuances of movement. Um, so the, the thing that I will say about tripods and spotting scopes and, and tripods and binos is now all the tripods that I use are sturdy enough and, and uh, have an Arca rail type head so that I can also shoot a rifle off of them. So if I'm going to be carrying a tripod for an optic, it's going to be a tripod that I can shoot the gun off of. Gotcha. I haven't quite got to that point yet of, uh, of making. I'm going to get you there. Yeah, yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> um, so we have a mountain goat hunt coming up like tomorrow. Not actually tomorrow, but it feels like tomorrow. Yeah, it's close, man. It's it's close, but in between that, I'm super excited for it. But in, in between that, I've got a, a few hunts. One of them is a uh, the bighorn sheep hunt, the governor's tag bighorn sheep hunt for Idaho. And that's going to be... Oh, cool interesting yeah so i just talked to the guide the other day like a week ago and he said the previous week um they backpacked in and were scouting and it is going to be a backpack hunt i kind of figure that it, horses would be involved but they're not um so i'm gonna have to carry everything and uh they went 10 miles in and the total trip was like 21 miles round trip and he said he carried water for seven miles so i might die yeah that's super rugged super rugged um so when is that hunt so that start in august um yeah i think the last day of august so basically that first week of september i think okay and then are you doing any archery hunting in september um so basically what i've got on the docket this year it's super busy um i have i didn't really draw any tags myself i drew an antelope tag here in nebraska um, but most of my stuff's going to be filming. Well, it's pretty much all going to be filming, I guess. Um, but I leave, so I'm going to be down in Utah for the August 15th archery elk opener, which should be super interesting. Um, doing that, coming back here, guiding an antelope hunter and then going on that, that Idaho trip and then going back down to Utah for elk. If we don't, um, kill that first week of August, or that, uh, that first week of season, I guess. And then, um, going to Wyoming for deer hunt. And then I go with you. So it's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. So let's talk about, we're, we're going mountain goat hunting on Kodiak Island. Um, unless the Rona stops us, in which case I'm going to be inconsolable, 
but let's talk about what it looks like to prepare from a gear perspective for an Alaskan mountain goat hunt. So, um, for me, a lot of it has to do with the rain. Um, just having it being wet all the time, like where I typically go, we're in the high country. I don't carry really heavyweight rain gear with me for the most part. And a lot of times I might not even have rain pants with me, depending on what the weather's going to look like. Um, but Kodiak, you know, I mean, not only if it's not raining, um, if you're going through all that brush and whatnot, there's a good chance that that brush is going to be wet too, especially in the mornings. So you need to have good rain gear um, for that. So that's probably one of the biggest things. And then with the cameras too, is is dealing with the rain. So I got a new, a couple new rain covers that I think are going to work well. So I think I have a system down that it's gonna it's gonna work well. But that's that was one of the bigger things for me was uh, getting my rain, making sure my rain gear was dialed. Yeah, I've I've been on a bunch of hunts where there was precip and it was being filmed and you know, guys are just cutting a hole in a trash bag for their lens and then crawling inside of that trash bag with their camera. And it's so loud and visible and obnoxious. It just drives me crazy. So what are you doing to keep your cameras dry back there? So I got, I'm going to have a, like a dry bag that I'm just going to be able to trash put- bag. Don't do a trash right now. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to do, I'm going to have a, a dry bag with me that I can just put the camera in. And if I need to, like if it's bad enough or it's downtime or whatever, where we're not really deep in the filming. Um, so I can put it in there and just, you know, have it be waterproof and just be able to set it anywhere, but have it be waterproof. Um uh, Or away from the water anyways. So that's what I'm going to do there. And then I also have... Uh, a company called Peak Design makes a rain cover that fits like on a for a specific camera. So I got a couple of those um, that should be okay. I mean, if it's raining and I'm using it, it'll be okay. But what I'm worried about more than anything is like setting it, setting the camera somewhere where it's just going to get saturated. So that's what the dry bag is for. Um, so. I mean, I'm crossing my fingers that that's going to be all right. One thing Cole told me, he's like, you have to, you have to make sure you have a rain cover for your camera because it's, it might not be good otherwise. So I'm thinking about bringing an umbrella. Oh my God. I've, I've, (laughs) (laughs) I've thought about this before and you know, a a spotting scope has the, the screw attachment on the bottom for mounting a plate onto it or whatever. I've always thought that a spotting scope should have another one on top that you could like screw a little spotting scope umbrella onto so that you could have, you know, a little place to keep your optic and your and your little eyeballs out of the rain when you're glassing. And I know a lot of people are like, well, if it's raining that hard, you know, you can't see very far. Yes, true. That's a point. However, this is a freaking mountain goat hunt. So I'm going to be glassing. I'm going to be hunting. And if I can only see through little sucker holes in the rain, I need to be looking through those all the time. So I haven't completely figured out how I'm going to keep my, my scope waterproof. You know, you and I have a meeting later on today where we're going to go over a lot of this stuff, but I'm definitely looking into some options for, you know, how to keep my optical system good to go. But yeah, I, I definitely caught myself the other night um, looking up lightweight umbrellas. 
And it's it's one of those things like I, I was on a uh, on a for realsies backcountry hunt quite a while ago, and it was the first time I'd ever seen one of those Helinox chairs. And somebody, oh, yeah. you know, pulled this chair out back at the at the trailhead, and I was like, "You're packing a chair? Are you high?" And after a few days in the backcountry, we would we were ready to like fight each other for you know a little bit of time in the chair because we're just glassing like crazy. There's cactus everywhere and uh, it just wasn't any fun to sit on the ground. So I think that there's a time when a luxury item like that is like the item to bring. Dude. Yeah. James is going to be looking like he's at, a, at the beach with his uh, umbrella <laughs> sitting in his chair. Dude, it's going to be epic. I can't wait. <laughs> oh man, that's oh, going to be bring good. Bring some little but- umbrellas to, uh, to put in my coffee. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. No, but that's going to be a dang fun hunt. I was actually on Kodiak a few years ago um, filming a girl, and we just we did kind of the same thing that we're going to do um, this year on this trip, I think, anyways. Um, and it was, it was good. It was just you're in rain pants all the time, which kind of sucks. And actually, you know, this brings up a good point. I had a friend that um, he used this in Alaska, like it up in – um, not on Kodiak, but the actual, um, the main island. Is that what you'd call that? The main, the mainland, Alaska mainland. Okay. And uh, yeah, he, not, so. Not really an island, but sure. Yeah, I'll go yeah, with it. Yeah, I'm an idiot. Um, Sometimes. So anyways, he had, <laughs> instead of wearing pants, like instead of wearing his regular pants underneath of his rain pants, he would just wear like his, I mean, long johns essentially, and then put his rain pants over the top of that because they were, it was always raining. Um, and then he could just unzip the sides and, and vent if it wasn't raining or if they were walking around or whatever. So I don't know, that might be worth a, uh, might be worth a shot. We'll see how wet it is. Okay. Yeah. Be interesting. I'm super excited. It's, I've never got to hunt in Alaska before. I've been up there, um, working on some fishing trips and I've got to, to fish for fun once and I love it. You know, it, it exceeds it exceeds expectations in every way. So it's a pretty neat place. Yeah, it's going to be a great trip. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um anything else you want to talk about? Um I can't really think of anything right now. No. We covered a lot. We did cover a lot. That was fun. Um, okay. Let's, let's conclude with a couple minutes of advice to, uh, to a young lady hunter by Jordan Budd. Oh man. Ooh. Um, so a young, young gals looking at just getting into hunting, not, not hunting industry, not, not taking pictures of their butts or anything like that. They, they just want to get into hunting and, and nobody in their family's done it. You know, they think Katniss Everdeen's a badass or whatever. Like, how, how do they get started? What do they do? Man, um, uh, it's it's going to be, it's such a simple little answer I'm going to have, but I know it's super complicated, um, is just go. Just commit. Like, don't think about it for a long time because, um, you know, you, you think and plan and you wish that you really want to go do something, but you don't ever really do it. So there's that one. And then, I mean, reach out. Because I know I've always been pretty good at just going out and doing things by myself and just I'm going to go do it. So see, you know, see you later. I'll see you when I get home. Um, 
but I know that everybody's not like that. So finding a good mentor in your area would probably be a good one. And I couldn't even really tell you how to do that besides going to like a bow shop and just talk to somebody and ask if you can, you know, if you can tag along with them sometime or if they can point you in the right direction. Um, I know there's not public land everywhere, but if you don't have a place to go, I mean, trying to find the closest public land spot to you, go do that. Pick up a tag. Um, try to make it close to home because that's a a little bit of a comfort thing too. You know, being close to home, you don't have to drive as far. You could hunt it more too. That's another good thing. Um, and then just go have fun and experience the experience the hunt for what it is and try to get an animal on the ground like the don't be too worried about how big the thing is just go get the experience um of what it's like to do that and and yeah my uh my biggest advice is just do it now because you're not gonna get any younger and just go go do it i think that's great great advice and then the only thing that I'll add to that is if you are in a place that doesn't doesn't have good access to public land, that means that there's going to be some private land around. And private land, a lot of it, is going to be producing some type of agricultural crop. And whether that crop is wheat or alfalfa or some type of row crop or, um, or if it's livestock, there's going to be an association of ag producers who who are in that area and they probably meet once a month, go to that meeting and introduce yourself to those people and see what it is that they need that you can contribute. And that will turn into access to those private properties to go hunting. So if that's the only option that's available to you, which I fully understand, then go talk to the people that own the land and, and try and help them out and see what they need and, you know, become friends with them. And the next thing you know, you're going to have a place to hunt that's all yourself. Dude, absolutely. Develop those relationships. Um, relationships are extremely, extremely important. Doesn't matter what industry you're in or just a daily, you know, a day-to-day thing. Relationships are important and and uh, gaining trust and friendship and being a good person is all part of that, I think. Yep. And be true to yourself. Be true to everybody else. Don't sell your credibility. And uh, yeah, Jordan, um, I really appreciate you taking taking time out of your day on this uh, this this early morning and and talking with me and and sharing your knowledge and information with everybody. And I'm not not being facetious at all when when I say that you know you're you're, you're one of my heroes. Like you're just absolutely crushing it in in every way. And, and I look up to you and it's a great honor for me to be able to talk with you and to be able to work with you. And I'm so looking forward to being able to, uh, to go hunting with you, man. Well, I, uh, I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, you've always given me a, a ton of support and you've been a great friend and I can't wait to get on the mountain with you. It's going to be awesome. Have, have a good day and I'll talk to you again soon. All right, man. All right, see ya. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. 
Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.